I'm Seema Amble, Assassin Fintech Investor at Andreessen Horowitz. The number one question I get asked by early B2B Fintech founders is, how do I acquire my first set of customers? As well as, how do I get my customers to trust me with their money? In my first 16, I chat with the founders of several prominent fintech companies and ask them about how they targeted their initial customers, what they did to win their business, and their hardest learned lessons. Today, my guest is Zach Perret, the co-founder and CEO of Plaid, the data network that thousands of businesses use to connect apps and services with users' financial accounts. We'll hear from him on how Plaid built a community in the early days to acquire customers and gather feedback, and how they tracked free radicals. Also, how boring is a brand, how to orient your first customers around speed, and when it makes sense to start chasing enterprise customers. Let's dive in. As a reminder, the content here is for informational purposes only. It should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Zach, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. Um, really excited to have you. Um, but if you could start off by just telling us a little bit um, about the founding story of Plaid um, and you know where you guys started off. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, an honor to be here and uh, chatting about the early Plaid story is always fun, uh, fun for me. Um, so Platt had a, a, a bit of a, a rocky early start. So when my co-founder William and I first founded Plaid, we had this vision that we wanted to create um, tools to help consumers better analyze their finances. You know, this was in 2012 and we were based in New York City. So we had this little tiny office uh, about a block off of Union Square. Um, and in 2012, if you'll remember, that was when they kicked all the Zuccotti Park protesters out of Zuccotti Park. They all moved up to Union Square. Um, and so, you know, we walked through the Occupy Wall Street protests a couple of times a week as we were on the way to the office. And, you know, setting the politics of all that aside, the thing that we could really tell is that consumers were frustrated with their, their financial products. They were not able to get, um, uh, you know, the financial tools that they needed. They didn't feel that like there was a lot of trust in the financial system. They didn't feel like the banks were looking out for them. Um, and, you know, being uh, these uh, kind of naive early 20, uh, 20 year olds um, uh, thinking about how we could uh, go help people, we said, hey, well, we want to build better tools to help people analyze their finances. Now, we weren't so um, sanguine and thoughtful to figure out um, uh, the right kind of product to build. So we just started building any product that we could imagine. Um, uh, and we ended up creating uh, basically tools to help consumers um, look at their, their, their money. So direct to consumer tools. Um, think of this as kind of like a, a version of Mint or a version of a budget analysis tool um, right. for, a, for a consumer. Um, and we ended up building actually like six or seven of these in different permutations. So um, some were focused on helping consumers analyze their spending. Some were focused on recommending places where you could spend less money as a consumer. Um, some were uh, just fun tools and um, uh, kind of analyzing your spend and putting a spotlight on all the places that you spend money. And all of this was with, with the intent of helping consumers better understand, you know, how they were spending and maybe save more. Um, but uh, we had some shortcomings. Uh, so as I said, we didn't have a huge plan for what we were going to build. We just wanted to build something to help people. Um, uh, the biggest shortcoming that we found is that if you build a consumer facing product that largely tells a consumer to stop doing some behavior that they want to do, um, uh, it doesn't go very well. So we would oftentimes, uh, you know, build a budget and say, 
hey, consumers, you're spending too much on restaurants. You should spend less. Um, that, that's not a very effective way to create behavior change. Now, there are a lot of really smart, amazing entrepreneurs that have built much better products than we could have built. But what we found is that if we told the consumer to spend less money on restaurants, they would just delete our app. Um, they would stop using it. They would never show up again. Um, and, you know, I think they were right. It wasn't an excellent product. We hadn't thought through all the implications of, um, you know, how to create behavior change. And we certainly weren't giving them a lot of better options. Um, but along the way, we found that, um, you know, the, 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 the tool that we built was really interesting to a lot of other developers. Um, so um, myself and my co-founder, we were kind of um, uh, software developers, like kind of uh, uh, engineers by, 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 by background. And um, we were talking to a lot of our friends that were in the, the early fintech community. Now, this was before fintech had a name, but these were friends that wanted to build um, financial products for consumers. And they were really intrigued by the way that we were able to collect the data on the consumer's behalf, structure the data on the consumer's behalf, because they all wanted to create their own products that you know, use this kind of data. And so we ended up making a pivot in the business to say, we're not going to go direct to consumer because we've learned concretely that we are not only bad at building things for consumers, but we don't even know what consumers want. Um, uh, and we pivoted and, and decided to go uh, direct to businesses. So um, we started selling to other uh, kind of software businesses that um, uh, were trying to build consumer facing financial products. And so that's where we um, ended up finding the sweet spot. It turns out the challenge that we've solved, which is how do you take bank data and structure it and then put it into an application? How do you connect a bank account to an application? Uh, that was a really, really hard challenge. And we'd been solving that to build our consumer product, but we actually just pivoted that and said, well, if we sell this as a B2B service, it'll be much better. Um, uh, it was actually to the point that, um, you know, one of our friends uh, came to us and said, hey, look, your consumer products are bad. Uh, they're, they're, they're just not good, but I would like to license the back end of what you do. Can I pay you for that? Um, and so that was when we made this pivot. And that, that was kind of the early story. A common theme in fintech has been, you know, you can't just go out with something that's kind of half-baked. Um, but a lot of times people have pivoted into, you know, infrastructure from having built like a consumer B2B facing application level uh, product. So curious, like how you guys thought about, okay, this is the API that we want to launch with for other developers to build on. Yeah. So I, I find that in financial services, um, it's, it's not often um, sufficient to solve part of a problem for a person. Um, but what is sufficient is to solve a complete problem for a very narrow set of people. Um, so we were fortunate that, um, you know, we had built integrations into a couple banks. Um, I think our first one was America Express, and we, we built into a couple more in order to allow people to connect their bank account and, you know, use our budgeting tool. Um, and when we made the B2B shift, we found that um, for many of the people that were initially interested in using Plaid, they were doing, um, let's say, expense management. And so one of our very first customers was someone that was doing expense management and all they needed to do was collect all of the, the transactions um, uh, that you spent on your corporate card. Um, and it turns out corporate cards were American Express cards. So we had this connection and could build a product that only worked for corporate American Express customers. Um, uh, but it solved the entire problem for any corporate American Express customer. So um, uh, we actually were able to kind of launch Plaid initially, again, only with one bank account that we connected to or one, one, one bank type, one financial institution um, that we connected to um, and uh, found a couple of customers that needed this very narrow use case um, and were able to launch with them. Um, we then were able to launch with some consumer customers where the, the consumer customers um, were, again, building better budgeting tools and um, uh, could basically look at this and say, well, it only works for this type of card. Um, and that was okay. 
Um, uh, and then eventually we added more and more connections. And um, once we got to about um, 15 or so connections, we then started having very serious conversations with Venmo. Um, uh, and that was the first kind of big customer that ended up uh, really scaling with us. It was a really wonderful story for us. Um, but yeah, we, we had a very incomplete product at first. Um, however, it worked completely for a very narrow use case. And that was, that was the key. Yeah. And that's not uncommon, right? You, you need to have like it, uh, something work hundred percent of the way, even if it's a narrow use case, but that's at least testing the value prop totally versus, uh, versus not, um, curious if it was fully automated or there was still like bubble gum and duct tape in the background, or I'm, I'm sure as, as things often break in infrastructure early on, uh, as long as your customer isn't seeing it, uh, usually that works, but I'm curious if, uh, how do you, how you thought about like fully having the tech, like the API calls work versus needing to like kind of manually run in every so often. That's a great question. So um, the APIs calls always worked and there was, there was really never any um, true manual component to it. When you think about um, the latency that's needed, um, if, if, if I want to say, check my bank balance, it's not because I want to check my bank balance in two hours that I'm making this request. It's I'm checking my bank balance right now because I'm trying to buy something. Um, so we needed to make sure that, that the latency was as low as possible. There was no kind of like human action in the middle. Um, now, Bubblegum and duct tape is a different story. So um, uh, the reality is most banks didn't have APIs. Um, uh, and when we went to the banks and said, hey, look, you know, we'd like to integrate with your API, they would say, what's an API and who are you and um, uh, why are you here? Um, and so the way that we ended up integrating with banks was like all sorts of messy. It was like plugging into systems as they existed. Um, uh, the systems would break, they'd go down. So there's a lot of like fixing the infrastructure. Um, but there wasn't a, a, a true manual process on the back end um, uh, uh, ever, um, uh, aside from, you know, us going through and saying, well, this is not working, let's fix it. This is not working, let's fix it. We'd love to transition into just talking about like the initial set of customers, um, you know, leading up to Venmo, let's say, and and, and the Venmo story. Um, but one of the best or one of my favorite things about the Plaid story is how you guys built community. And, uh, you know, you were mentioning just earlier about how like a lot of your friends were building apps. Um, we'd love to touch on how you've, how you guys thought about like, you know, who to target um, and, and, you know, who you wanted to be your first customers, both in that like Amex category that we just talked about, but also beyond that. So our early go to market was really just about talking to people. So um, as I said, we founded Plaid in New York city Um uh, there were a lot of people in the New York community that were interested in building software for financial services. Obviously, um, a lot of people coming out of the banks themselves that wanted to create better products and a lot of people that were, um, you know, thinking of, of, of new ideas. The reality is software in, in, in financial services at the time, um, it, the mindshare was dominated by Mint, um, which had, you know, had this phenomenal success story. Um, uh, and um, by a small handful of other very early stage companies. When you thought of financial software, it was Mint PayPal, and then like a few people had heard of Venmo, and that was it. Um, and so um, in New York, we ended up uh, just going to a lot of meetups, talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, talking to a lot of people that were thinking about building startups generally. Um, the 2012 New York startup community was very small um, and it was very tight. Um, and so you could kind of like go to a meetup and you'd meet half the companies in New York. Um, and so we did that a lot. Eventually, we found a couple of early customers that were thinking about, as I said, expense management was the first real use case where our product was the complete thing that you needed to serve a, a user. Um, and that became, you know, our, our, our first customer or two. Um, but 
one of the things that, that, that we did was just try to really deeply understand the people that we were talking to. Um, initially, uh, instead of, you know, uh, doing contracts and, and sales and account management and things like that, um, we said, hey, we'll publish an API. You don't have to sign any contract, just use it. Um, and the only ask is that you give me your phone number so that I can text you. Um, and what I would do is I would just um, text these people that said they would use the API. Um, I would text them like every week um, and say like, hey, what could we do better? Like, what, what feedback do you have? How's this working? Like, I saw you didn't send, send any calls this week. What's going on? Or I saw you like, you, you know, made a couple of odd uh, request patterns. Like, uh, can I help you fix that? Um, and we would literally just inspect their traffic, like see what was coming in, um, uh, see what was being used and then, and then text them about it. Um, and the amazing thing is this concept of texting your customers um, turned a lot of these people that were kind of like loose acquaintances in the startup ecosystem into really good friends. Um, and this is something that persisted for a really long time. So you know, I was probably on text with our first 100, 200 customers uh, just directly. Um, and many of those have become lifelong friends for me. They've given great feedback. It's been really helpful. Uh, but this concept of, you know, not being too formal about it um, uh, and being really genuine to the community and then like really deeply caring to the point of like maybe even annoying our first customers with, with too many texts to ask for feedback um, uh, was was very, very helpful. No, and, and getting that early feedback is a common theme we've been hearing. Um, how did you think about spending time with customers? I've, I, I know a few stories I've heard from early Plaid customers around uh, how you guys spent time with them, but would love for you to share some of the, uh, if, yeah, how you, how you spent time with them. Well, the, the short answer is we did as much to spend time with them as we possibly could. So um, we started the company in New York. We, we knew we wanted to move it to California um, eventually, but um, in the meantime, I ended up just flying a lot back and forth between anywhere that our customers were. So um, this was oftentimes um, uh, California and, and, and New York, but we, we could chase customers wherever, Chicago, wherever, wherever they happened to be. Um, uh, our key would be, we wanted to go spend time in their office. We wanted to build a personal relationship with them. We wanted them to tell us what was going on. We wanted to know everyone that was gonna interact with Plaid from the founder to the support team member, um, because those were the people that were gonna, were gonna give feedback on it. Um, and, you know, we tried to do some scaled things as well. So the first time we got an office, we started doing this thing called a plaid out. It's a terrible name because it was actually in our office. So it was maybe a plaid in is a better name. Um, but what we would do is we would invite anyone that we possibly knew in the startup community doing fintech um, to come to our office and, uh, you know, have a beer with us and, uh, and talk to us about things. Um, and, you know, initially it was me, William and an intern. Um, uh, eventually, you know, we had four or five other engineers and, and people come in and none of us were particularly social, um, all kind of introverted and none of us particularly drank very much. So uh, it would always be this like little bit of an awkward thing where we just invited a bunch of people to come to our office and um, uh, it was like hard to, 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 to start the conversation, but you do it. And, and you eventually meet um, customers and they would tell you things or you'd meet potential recruits and they would tell you things. And um, little by little, we were able to build a community around just this fact that we would say, hey, we're always going to be there talking to you. Like, we're going to be texting you and um, we're going to have you into our office whenever you want to come in. Um, and the interesting thing is it built a an early kernel for a very genuine brand in the community. Um, it meant that people um, just liked talking to the Plaid team. Um, when we first started hiring go-to-market people, which I'll get back to in a second, um, uh, we didn't call them salespeople. We didn't call them account managers because we found that the people we were selling to were engineers. Um, and we, we hired people that had some engineering background, 
um, uh, that really kind of like new financial services and we called them growth, which was uh, a very confusing name, but it kind of worked. Um, but we found that uh, engineers and, and, and product managers didn't want to talk to salespeople, they want to talk to growth people. And, and, and that was a much more interesting conversation. Um, uh, and so um, for all these people that we hired, we, we, we made a huge focus on building a relationship first and then uh, uh, selling the product um, or, or, or account managing the product or whatever it is. Um, but um, by, by kind of building those deep relationships, we actually got a lot of people saying, um, hey, we decided to buy your products because we really like your growth team, because we really like the account managers we're going to work with. Um, it's not actually any better than the competitor sometimes, they would say. Um, uh, but we believe that long term, you'll be better. And if you hire that kind of person, we believe that your product's going to be um, uh, dramatically better in the next five years. So we want to bet on you early. Um, and that was a, kind of a, a, a huge point of uh, feedback for us. The one question that comes up a ton is, you know, should we charge? How do I think about pricing early days? Like I need to get feedback, but I also want to validate that there's a market here. How did you guys think about pricing and how much time did you spend on that on the, the early days? Um, so we thought that having um, people build on the product that would eventually pay us was very important. Um, so we always had a pricing model. Um, our pricing model was incredibly naive. We basically just like looked at what other players in the industry did. We did the same thing. We had approximately the same prices. It wasn't um, uh, too hard. Like you know, maybe we're a little less. And eventually, not, now we're, we're 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 more than the average uh, price in the market. But um, we didn't over-engineer the model. Um, we did go to customers and say, "Hey, like you'll get X amount of time free if you launch within Y timeframe." So again, the goal was to get to usage, to get to traction. Um, yep. And so, you know, we would even say, you'll get a year free if you launch in the next four weeks. Like it would be just these crazy deals, which, um, you know, would oftentimes encourage them to do it. But, but behind that, we did say, all right, and by the way, here is the likely pricing model um, uh, when, when we start charging you. Like here is the, the, the pricing sheet. And we'd actually even give them the opportunity to renegotiate the pricing before they got charged. So we said like a month before you start getting charged, we'll renegotiate pricing if you want to, because we didn't want people to overburden pricing, but we wanted yeah. them to know that they were going to get charged eventually. Um, yeah. Because otherwise they might you know, be using it for free and, and not take it seriously. Um, but yeah, our, our free trials were really long. I remember um, there was this period of time where we'd signed you know, like, like a, a bunch of fairly decently sized companies, I think including Venmo and Robinhood under free trials. And like their usage was super high and our revenue was, you know, $500 a month from the, the collective uh, uh, revenue from all the rest of our customers because those two were paying us. Um, and then, you know, one day we went into a board meeting and we were like, oh yeah, and, and the revenue finally came in. Like you see this huge jump in our metrics and it, and it feels good. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a long time before we got real revenue. I think in the case of, um, in the case of Venmo, it was like a full year of free trial. Yeah, no, makes sense. I think that concept of having a reference price out there so they know, right, the value behind this product. But then again, you're like, it sounds like you were very focused on getting people using it quickly and prioritizing like the feedback. And so that it kind of all aligned uh, from a company building perspective. How did you think about size of customer? Because I think a lot of times, you know, early on when you're launching, you can get smaller customers on board. Um, you guys were also at a really interesting time when FinTech was sort of starting to, to really take off. And so your, your customers obviously grew up over time, but did you spend time thinking, okay, like better to just get smaller customers on board early to get feedback, or like we should also get some larger customers to see if there's interest as um, companies get bigger, whether they'd want to like, you know, use an external infrastructure provider here. Curious, yeah, curious how you guys thought about that. So I, I think um, 
who you take as customers and who you talk to as customers are slightly different things. So I told you our filters for who we take as customers, which is, are you going to launch fast and can I have your phone number? Um, yep. And we applied that to everybody. So if they weren't going to launch fast and weren't, weren't, weren't willing to talk to us a lot, um, then we didn't really pursue it, which meant that we ended up pursuing a lot of smaller customers as opposed to bigger ones. Um, that was who we ended up having go live. Now, who we talked to was everybody out there. So I went and pounded the pavement and talked to every single person. We talked to companies from PayPal on down to, you know, two-person companies in the garage. Um, and saying, hey, this is what we do. This is how we think about it. This is where it's going. Like getting that direct customer feedback was incredibly valuable. So um, I would say we, we kind of bifurcated that. We ended up with a lot of small customers that were using it initially um, and then having a bunch of big conversations. Um, and then once we knew that the product worked, that was when we started to say, all right, we need, we need Lighthouse customers. We need one or two customers that have a big name. And at the time, um, big name was a little relative. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we wanted a startup that had really good investors. Um, uh, and, you know, we were able to get Robinhood and, and Venmo early on. And like, those, were, those were the two Lighthouse names where we could say, hey, these two are using us. Um, everybody else, we can now use those as examples. We'd love to just talk quickly about team. You know, you guys started off, you know, it's a team of in, engineers and uh, pretty technical. When did you think about your first go-to-market hire and what that might be like? You mentioned the growth folks. Is that what you, you would sort of think of as your go-to-market engine for the, the early days beyond yeah. you guys? As the founders. So, so our, our thesis was um, we wanted to hire all engineers um, that would talk to engineers and right. um, we never really needed to hire anyone else. Now, we hired a designer. We, we, we had a couple um, uh, kind of like er, early folks that were uh, basically two designers that were not uh, engineers, but almost everyone at the company was engineers. Um, and, you know, it quickly became apparent that I was the worst engineer in the room. Um, and so I needed to go out and, uh, you know, drop out business if, if, if I was to prove my, my, my value to the company. Um, so initially all of the, the, the go to market was me and it was nice because I could sit with our customer engineers and help them do implementations and, and so forth. Um, and then at some point, you know, I, I didn't have time to do it all. Um, and so we took, uh, another early engineer who was, um, uh, amazing at so many things, but also particularly gregarious. Um, and we said, all right, uh, his name is Carl. We said, Carl, um, you're going to come do all the go-to-market stuff with me. It was an incredibly unclear job. Uh, no one quite knew what it meant, but he basically just came to every customer call with me um, and chatted me for a while. And then uh, eventually I would say, like, Carl, can you do all this follow-up so I can go do the next call? And so it ended up being this, this, this quick handoff. Um, uh, but he and I worked together for I don't know, seven years, and he was an amazing leader for the company um, over time. Um, but that was the first person that we said, all right, well, we're going to change your title. Your title is now going to be growth. Um, and then little by little, we hired um, uh, another person uh, named Charlie, another person named Kate. Like, like we, we hired a few more people that um, uh, their title was growth. And they were these like quasi-technical, they oftentimes been product managers. I think a couple of them worked at banks uh, at first. And they were really just focused on like, how do I have a conversation with the customer? Um, how, do, how do I mostly do implementations? Like how do I talk them through how to actually implement this API? Um, and so we ended up having this pot of three people that was doing all of the go-to-market, um, everything from uh, sales to account management, team did support to, um, uh, just kind of like um, uh, trying to do everything that a customer would, 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 would call about. And we ran with this really small pod for like two, three years. Um, we didn't hire a sales leader until we were probably you know, four years into the company. Nobody had the title of sales until we probably were even like six or seven years into the company. We, we wouldn't even let our sales leader call our sales team sales. Um, 
Uh, and then eventually we ended up splitting out account management and uh, we built a support team. Uh, we had to have a very technical support team. Um, so it, it ended up bifurcating later, but it basically was, it was founder driven sales with people that I think are very foundery. So it could effectively clone the founder driven sales process and just create like a kind of a, a three person army to go chase down all the customers. Um, curious how you thought about, okay, you know, we've now scaled up, go to market. Um, was there a point where you're like, okay, the MX type deals do make sense or like you kind of changed the way you thought about the strategy of like the customers you acquire and going after bigger ones, or was it, you know, more of just a kind of like continuous transition over time as your customers grew up and it made more sense to go after larger, larger customers, you know, after you got Venmo and Robinhood and the others already started to start to sign up. It's a good question. So for a long time, we, um, really didn't, uh, chase true enterprises. We didn't chase anyone that made us do an RFP. I, I like, I think we started doing RFPs like 18 months ago, um, because, and then and so that's quite a long way that the company was 10 years in the company, because we would say, if we're doing an RFP, then, you know, we haven't built a relationship that we want with the customer. They're putting us up against all these other competitors, which means they don't really understand the value of the product. Um, uh, and that was perhaps short-sighted and we should have done this sooner. But um, for a very long time, we would really only focus on uh, kind of like high velocity tech driven organizations. Those high velocity tech driven organizations could exist inside the big banks. Um, uh, so eventually we did get a big contract signed with American Express um, where they had a tech team that was moving quickly and, and we found it and we were happy to work with them. Uh, but kind of going in and doing uh, kind of outside in sales into slow organizations that don't quite know how to buy your style of product. It just never felt worth it when we had, you know, a bunch of startups and, 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 and other businesses that were much more leaning into it. And so uh, we did start building a go-to-market team. As I said, we hired a really wonderful head of sales, even though we didn't let him call his team sales. Um, uh, and then uh, he kind of trained us on, all right, well, this is how sales could work. And, um, you know, you have these phases of sales and you have these different types of customers that you can sell to. So um, he was really helpful in transforming our business from one that, um, almost treated sales as, you know, an afterthought into something that said, all right, well, turns out a revenue team can, can, can be incredibly valuable for the company. We just have to do it correctly. And, um, we have to be sure that we build a brand with our customers such that they are not turned off by sales, but rather welcome sales because we have excellent salespeople. Um, and so I, I would say like we, we have become, um, much, much more mature on this front, but in terms of chasing those giganto logos, um, look, we're still wary. Um, if we can't find a high velocity person that's moving quickly inside of one of those larger, large organizations. Um, we just discount the probability that they're going to close anytime soon. Um, you can find those people and they exist, but really finding that champion in, in, in the big deals is, is crucial for us. And did messaging and your positioning change also as you, you know, kind of went after this set of larger customers, there were more competitors in the market. Um, you were probably coming up against more of the legacy players or the more enterprise old school players. Yeah, we had a, a very odd set of initial messaging. So um, when we first launched the company, it was myself and a co-founder. We were in our early 20s um, and you know, we were building something in financial services where we wanted people to take us seriously. And so our initial website design was designed to be boring. It was designed to look like a bank. Um, it was designed to look like um, you know something that someone would get to and they would sort of understand and they would sort of be intrigued and they'd say, yeah, but the color scheme, I trust that color scheme or you know, that logo is a solid logo. Okay. Um, uh, we didn't, we, we wanted to do uh, the exact opposite of what everyone in Silicon Valley was doing, which was being really consumer friendly and, you know, talking about their tech and all this stuff. We wanted to not do any of that because, um, we thought that financial services might be scared. And I think we were probably right. Um, so 
we initially created a really boring page. Um, and we also had a initial philosophy other than doing one fundraising announcement, um, uh, which was purely focused on hiring engineers. Um, we had a philosophy that we would never do press. So we never wanted to do press. We never wanted to do marketing. We never wanted to do publicity um, because we wanted to build a one-to-one -one relationship with our customer. And we wanted our brand to be um, what our customers understood about us, not what someone else told about our story. Um, and so boring website, um, no press and just high degree of hustle um, was actually very effective. And, and, and it worked for quite a long time. And, and you know, the, the, the best marketing that we did was um, you know, having Robinhood use our product and then having someone use Robinhood and say, how did you do that to Robinhood? And Robinhood would send them to us. And so it was this, this kind of like amazing um, referral engine. Over time, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of thawed a little bit. Um, so um, uh, we've made our website a little bit more friendly and appealing. Um, uh, it is still, you know, on the side of uh, uh, kind of a little bit more banky, traditional trust uh, inducing. Um, uh, and uh, we started to do some more press because we realized we needed to tell our story and uh, kind of avoiding press was not, um, uh, not a great long-term strategy. Um, but um, I would say, you know, for the first even like four or five years, it was a kind of boring website and very minimal press, um, really letting the product itself shine through. Um, excellent docs um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, letting, letting, letting our relationships shine through. Yeah, and I, it's, a, it's a common theme we hear in fintech, which is if you're selling to banks or in working with them or you need to just build trust, right, you need it to work. It's not about the the like flash and and more right around the product actually working and and having that backing up your your messaging versus um, like leading with marketing and needing that to to be what drives you. Um, last topic, and you already touched on a great piece of advice, but um, if there were advice you know that you would want to give your former self or future you know founders on acquiring their first set of customers. Um, anything else that you would share uh, now having gone through this journey you know for ten plus years? Um, I, I think I've touched on it. So text your customers, get really close with them, optimize for velocity because the velocity matters, um, uh, matters a lot. Um, don't, don't pursue the big contracts with an expectation that they'll close, but pursue them for, 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 for learning, um, uh, maybe almost exclusively. Um, and then I, I actually, um, I think a lot about the product itself enabling distribution. Um, so one of our philosophies within Plaid is that the products um, uh, should have the distribution built in um, or as best you can. Um, in the early phases, that was um, doing something that was slightly different, which is publishing our docs online, which our competitors didn't do, which seems commonplace now, um, and also giving an online sign-up page for uh, someone to come in to come and use the product. Um, now we think about um, building things like viral loops and, and such into uh, the product itself. Um, but um, I think really thinking about your distribution as a product strategy, um, as opposed to, you know, distribution as being, you know, the sales team's job. Um, I think that's, um, that's a really crucial thing. And um, when talking with small companies, that's something that I, I advise them to do. Yeah, no, that uh, resonates with a lot of things we've, we've been hearing from the other guests. Um, the other thing I think that's just, and then this may have been just total happenstance now looking back is going back to this point around community. It seems like, you know, you guys also, you know, built this network of a lot of folks who then went and started more companies and ended up being evangelists for the product, uh, which may not have been intentional at the time, but, uh, also ended up driving, it seems like a lot of the distribution, um, or, or at least the reputation and brand messaging of Vlad, um, you know, over the last 10 years. Oh, it was totally intentional. Um, okay. we, we wanted to be friends with everyone. We wanted everyone to know us because we believe that the engineers that were working on Plaid at this company, were going to go start the next company. Um, and so 
uh, for us, when someone left a company, when one of our champions left a company, that was like a moment of uh, sprint. So we would go in and say, great, who's the new champion and where is the other person going? Um, because um, when, when someone, we, we actually had this, um, this one engineer who installed Plaid at five companies. Um, and you know, when, when he went from the first company to the next company, we said, all right, great. What's your next company doing? How can we help? And, and, and eventually became founder and uh, built the product on top of Plaid. And it's, it's been this wonderful story, but um, we basically think of, uh, we, we call them free radicals, like the, the person that was the champion, like where are they going and what are they doing next? And how do we kind of follow this free radical around? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so that was, that was um, it was nice that, that we happened to be working with startups that had a lot of startup people that then went to the next startup or started their own startup. Yeah, no, I, and I, I love that term free radical. Um, awesome. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Um, Zach, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, and it was really fun to, to walk through the, the journey of Platt. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'd like to close by thanking my guests for sharing their insights on finding early customers and building strong businesses. You can hear the rest of my first 16 by going to a16z.com backslash podcasts and be sure to go to a 